Hello, mystery and thriller fans, and welcome to episode two of J.A. Crawford's Jove Brand is Near Death. My name is Gabe, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Jove Brand is Near Death. We met Ken Allen, who once played the most famous fictional super spy in cinematic history. Sadly for Ken, his Cinderella story ended with him wishing he'd stuck to scrubbing floors. Since then, he's developed a zen attitude, lived a quiet life, and has been framed for two murders. We pick up as Ken flees from the scene of the latest crime. Four. I had been making a fist for so long it hurt to stop. The flash drive was still buried in it, no worse for wear despite the places it had been and things it had seen. Lane Lackey thought it was more important than his own neck, and I was going to find out why before Stern slapped on the cuffs. If Lane had the evidence proving my innocence he claimed he had, maybe he knew who the killer was and what the hell I had been dragged into. There was no reason to go back inside. Everything I needed was in my pockets. Ditching my jacket, the big salmon beacon it was, brought relief, like I was shedding my skin. There was no going back now. I owned two of the three originals and hadn't seen the last one in 18 years. I thought about calling Ewan, but was concerned that contacting him would make him an accessory. I exited the lot with no direction. My old beater couldn't play MP3s, much less read a flash drive. Was it better to get some distance from the convention center or stop at the closest library? Having never been a wanted man before, I was at a loss. A big box store up ahead made up my mind. I turned in and parked on the far side of a panel van. The automatic doors didn't care I was in a hurry. I made for the display models and shoved Lane's flash drive into the fanciest laptop. A prompt asking if I wanted to run Albion.exe appeared on the screen. Yes, I clicked. The screen went black. Then the Warden Crest came to life, antlers and all. It was no shock Lane Lackey had a flair for the dramatic. He had designed JoveBrandFan.com as if visitors were agents accessing the Warden database. The same code or HTML or whatever websites were made of was installed on the flash drive. Having been to JoveBrandFan.com more times than I cared to admit, I knew how the interface worked. Mousing over each letter in Warden made an option expand. W opened the watch list, A the armory, and so on. I chose D for dossiers out of habit. This is where Lane Lackey would pile the freshest dirt he had dug up on me. A pop-up flared to life. Warning, access for gamesmen only, please confirm. The same terms and conditions rigmarole present on the Joe Brandt fan site popped up, giving the choice of I or nay. I clicked I. A list of file folders appeared, each styled to look like a warden dossier. Some were stamped complete, like the Sir Colin Prester dossier, and some were not, including the one on Ken Allen. Each person featured was linked to the Jove Brand series, either in front of or behind the camera. There was a Kit Calabria dossier. A vibration erupted in my inner ear and spread throughout my body. How much had Lane uncovered about Kit? <laughs> <laughs> 
When I clicked the dossier on Kit, it triggered another warning box. Please confirm your identity, gamesman. I stared at the cursor blinking in the dialog box. Should I type Lane Lackey, Joe Brand, Ken Allen? After seven seconds of wondering, a pop-up appeared, blinking red. Self-destructing. I waved an employee over, a high school kid who needed a shampoo. Ten. Nine. Help. Eight. Seven. Uh, you can't use that here, he replied, looking around for a higher power. Dude, is that you? Six. Five. I followed his finger to find my face on every screen in the store. The footage from beautiful downtown Burbank was playing silently with former brand Flea's second murder scene under it. Four. Three. I yanked the flash drive and made for my car. I couldn't have the police looking at its contents before I found out how many skeletons Lane was storing on it, particularly any skeletons tied to near death. Plus, if the cops plugged the drive in now, the last seconds would tick out. Knowing Lane Lackey, it would literally self-destruct. I used my phone to locate the nearest shipping service. Being the subject of a manhunt was not pleasant. My pulse throbbed in my neck. Every traffic light on the way was red. If I sent the flash drive to myself, a van vulture was going to snatch it out of my mailbox. What did files about near death have to do with Sir Colin's murder? It was the only movie Kit touched and my only connection to Joe Brand, and we both had dossiers on Lackey's flash drive. I burst into the shipping store like I was crossing a finish line. I surrounded the flash drive and notes scribbled on a shipping label in an excessive amount of bubble wrap. The cushy bundle my life depended on went into the smallest, toughest box money could buy. Big packages didn't fit in mailboxes. People stole big packages. Overnight rate was the fastest I could get it to a Miss June wedding. Having played a part in near death, June had a dossier as well. My mission accomplished, I called Special Investigator Stern and asked what she was doing for dinner. When forced to eat out, breakfast was the best low-carb option. An omelette wasn't my first choice for a last meal, but prime suspects couldn't be choosers. Prison food would not match my macros. Well, I had always wanted to try intermittent fasting. When life gave you lemons, it was time to break out the monk fruit extract. I dined al fresco, taking my time, savoring the fresh air and sunshine. A gentleman would have waited for a stern to order, but I had serious doubt she'd let me finish. No one pointed me out and screamed murderer in the two hours it took her to get there. Maybe I wasn't such a hot commodity. Stern pulled up in an unmarked, flanked by a pair of state patrol cars. She didn't approach with her weapon drawn, so that was something. I set down my fork and put my elbows on the table. Stern pointed at the nearest wall. Place your palms flat with your legs wide. Once I assumed the position, Stern searched me. I wasn't one to kiss and tell, so let's just say Stern would have found Lane Lackey's flash drive. She braced an arm against my back to keep me from turning toward her. You pay? My mouth had gone bone dry, so I nodded too many times instead of talking. Put your hands behind your back. In a demonstration of skill, I complied without face-planting into the wall. I'm turning myself in. Doesn't that earn me any credit? Not fleeing the scene would have earned more, Stern replied. As Stern cuffed me, she read my rights without inflection, letting the sentences run together to gloss over my essential liberties. She didn't tell me I was under arrest, she just arrested me. She didn't mention any charges. Art clearly did not imitate life. 
Let's go, Alan, she said, opening the back door of the unmarked. I lowered myself in and maneuvered for a position that didn't strain my shoulders. There wasn't one. The flurry of activity had helped me escape the dread, but it was catching right up. Stern cranked up the AC before pulling out of the lot, the two of us all alone. The oversized rear-view mirror gave me a look at her face. I assumed the opposite was also true. I don't get you, Alan. What's to get? Lackey has been ruffling your feathers for years. Why now? You're inquiring as to my motive? I shuffled to the edge of the seat in search of relief. Good, because there isn't one. I didn't kill Sir Colin, and I didn't kill Lane Lackey. The Colin Prester thing is also a mystery, Stern admitted. Whatever he said to you in his dressing room must have really honked you off. Oh, come on. Now, Lackey? You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking there was a new factor. Maybe he dug something up and put the squeeze on you. Like what? Lane Lackey's last text message popped into my head. I know what happened. I have proof. Couldn't have Lane done me a favor and typed, I know you didn't do it? Who knows, Stern said. Maybe you've been at this a while. Maybe Lackey did what we're doing right now, comparing unsolved murders to your convention schedule, looking at cold cases with crushed throats. You've got to be kidding me. We'll see what the eggheads turn up. They already found out those gloves are vintage. That's the kind of gift the giver would remember. And these convention centers have cameras everywhere. Good, I said. The sooner you review the footage, the better. In a hurry to be punished, Alan. In a hurry to be cleared. I hope there were a hundred cameras in that lounge. Stern stared at me for so long I got nervous she was going to run us off the road. I tried lying on my side. It didn't help. Sit up, Alan. For safety. I ignored her, turning on my back instead. After what felt like an hour, Stern asked, What's on your mind, Alan? That it's time to get a lawyer. Stern sighed. And here I thought we were developing a rapport. Stern booked me at the nearest state police station, where I formally requested a lawyer be provided for me. Good thing public defenders were free. Then again, you got what you paid for. I had a cell all to myself, which was good because I could touch opposite walls both ways. Still, there was plenty of room to knock out a bodyweight routine. I tried to sleep, but every little noise snapped me awake. Would a hacker be able to get into Lane Lackey's flash drive? Where did one enlist a trustworthy hacker? Did the murders have something to do with near death, or was I only a convenient patsy? Near death was not a labor of love. It was a necessary evil, a Hail Mary to save the Joe Brandt franchise. Nineteen films spanning fifty years, the product of the most successful independent production studio in film history, all because Kit Calabria's father, Big Don, sat down at the card table with Joe Brandt's creator. They didn't make writers like Bowman Fletcher anymore, he was the product of an entire generation going to war. When Fletcher wrote about killing, he didn't have to imagine what it was like. He just had to remember. No one knows who Bowman Fletcher really was, but it's believed he was a spy himself. The deep divers like Lane Lackey never uncovered his origins adds credence to the theory. Lane postulated the Jove Brand stories were a form of therapy, technicolor tales designed to make sense of the senseless. Never glorifying, but forever justifying. But Bowman Fletcher only wrote when the darkness came for him. The rest of the time, he manically blew through money, usually at the card table. Jove Brand knew the odds. He also knew they didn't apply to him. 
Fletcher began in the gamesman afoot, the first brand novel. It was carved on his tombstone. Big Don Calabria was a giant in his own right. A smuggler during the Second World War, he plundered Axe's ships to unload war spoils on the private market, often selling them back to their original owners. When the cards were dealt, neither he nor Fletcher would back down. The stakes rose every round until Fletcher had wagered away the Caribbean estate bought with the proceeds of his best-selling novels. Fletcher wanted his private paradise back, and he only had one thing left to wager with, the film rights to Joe Brand. Four sevens versus a royal flush. The odds of those two hands occurring at the same time were so astronomically small they might as well be impossible. Recounting the tale on jovebrandfan.com, Lane Lackey suggested that should anyone face a notorious pirate at the card table, it would perhaps be best to have a third party shuffle the deck. Those in attendance recalled that Big Don Calabria didn't look surprised when the cards were turned over. Big Don had cleaned Fletcher out. The two of them locked eyes, the pirates' dark pools and the soldiers' icy orbs. How many bodies had they stacked between them? In the end, Fletcher decided that particular gamble wasn't worth it. The next day, Calabria met Fletcher in the estate he now owned. Fletcher had drawn up the rights contract on the same typewriter he had birthed Jove Brand. It was already signed. Big Don, eager to seal the deal, added his own name. He didn't bother reading the details, which was where Bowman Fletcher got his revenge. His weapons were words, and the lawyers had been using that contract as ammunition for a half century. Having gotten what he wanted, the former pirate gave Bowman Fletcher his house back. Big Don wanted the author at his desk, churning out future volumes to one day become Calabria Productions. It wasn't until Big Don got that contract in front of his lawyers that he learned his treasure was not bought, but forever borrowed. The chief provision of the infamous brand rights contract was the expiration clause. If a Jove brand film wasn't released every three years, the rights reverted to the author, or the author's estate in the event of his death. Thus began a race the Calabria family had run 19 times, often crossing the finish line by a hair. No one was looking to help them. The big studios were too busy praying the Calabrias would drop the baton so they could scoop it up. Every brand film had been independently funded, often from nebulous sources the Calabrias never disclosed. Once released in a limited run, the distributors accepted defeat and Jove Brand was seen on screens worldwide. Each film was expected to top the last in a series of increasingly costly spectacles to satisfy audience expectations. It all came to a head with a beautiful disaster. The growing volume of my lawyer laying into stern on their walk to my cell brought me back to reality. You went fishing and came up with a bare hook is what happened, special investigator. You have 20 hours to charge my client, unless you wish to release him now. Stern opened my cell door and stomped off without replying. No hello, I called after her. Why would you do that? Don't do that. What? Speak to the police, ever, my lawyer said as she handed over her card. Mercy, good day? I was conceived at Woodstock. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Allen. None of the years Mercy Good Day had on me showed. She looked like a pixie got trapped in a library. Her features were small and sharp with a chin that came to a point. Her long auburn hair was seeded with white strands. Her suit was both professional and comfortable. Mercy wore minimal makeup and no jewelry. Guess I got lucky, I said. 
You did not. June Wedding sent me. Too fast. It had been less than eight hours since I mailed June the flash drive. She's quite the lady, I replied. Yes, she is. How bad is it? Not, Mercy answered. The case is being built. Thus far, all the evidence is circumstantial. The police are searching your car and home now. They won't find anything, I said. I didn't kill anyone. That doesn't make it permissible to speak with law enforcement. I'll try to stop. I got up off the cot. Being confined had me stretching every ten minutes. How long will I be here? They won't charge you, not yet. I'll get you released, hopefully today. My breath of relief was a half decibel under a lion's roar. From now on, no more interactions with the police, no matter what they look like. Refer them to me, Mercy said. She leaned in to whisper the next part. June would like to speak with you. And I would like to speak with her, I whispered back. We will discuss your case as it develops. Any questions, Mr. Allen? Can I get food delivered? Mercy was too professional to roll her eyes. I'm going to get to work on this. Don't discuss your situation with anyone but me. That includes the police. That's the third time you've said that. Then consider yourself charmed, Mercy replied. She left without saying goodbye. I slept away the rest of my time in jail. Mercy escorted me out of the station to ensure my trap stayed shut, then drove me to the impound where my thoroughly rifled vehicle awaited. You were right. They didn't find anything, she told me. How do you know? If they had, we'd be going to arraignment. Mercy handed me a GPS and a giant-sized coffee. June's address is already programmed. See her at your earliest convenience. I'm on my way now, I said, opening the car door. If I could make one more suggestion, Mr. Allen, try running away from danger instead of toward it. It's not on purpose, I protested. Mercy didn't look like she believed me. The sky lightened on the journey north. The GPS reported a six-hour drive. I was itching for a shower but wanted answers more than I wanted to be clean. When I couldn't ignore my stomach anymore, I stopped for another omelet. The waitress refused to accept that I didn't want potatoes, toast, or a fruit cup. That's how far I was from this town. Six hours, and again, no radio. I was lost inside my head trying to make sense of what had happened to my life. Why was Lane interested in near death, and what had he uncovered? If you were going to dig into the movie's troubled production, you had to start with what caused the trouble in the first place. Bryce Crisp was the second Jove brand guiding the series through the 80s and 90s as he transformed the character from assassin to knight-errant. The first brand was a taker. Bryce Crisp was a giver. Bryce's brand always left the ladies in better shape than he found them. Even the title songs changed, from boisterous lyrics over blaring horns to smooth ballads delivered by a saxophone. A Beautiful Disaster was supposed to be Bryce's big send-off, Everything expected of a Jove brand film turned up to eleven, with action set pieces on land, sea, and air. Two problems arose. The first was Calabria Films didn't have the special effects resources the big studios did. A beautiful disaster didn't compare well with the aliens invading Earth the next screen over. The second was Bryce himself. The audience had always overlooked his weak action chops, Crisp's brand got by on gadgets and charm, but he qualified for social security when filming a beautiful disaster. No amount of hair dye could conceal he was a senior citizen. Any scene requiring more than a brisk walk was handled by a stuntman. 
Big Don even used the old first-person fight cam trick, the viewer looking out of Bran's eyes as the bad guy sent punches and kicks his way. Even worse were the love scenes. Brand beauties were the it girls of their time. Audiences weren't up for watching Bryce crisp lock lips with an actress who could have been his granddaughter. Bryce himself appeared uncomfortable with the proposition and displayed more of a fatherly attitude in lieu of his famous charm. A beautiful disaster was the first brand bomb, falling well short of making back its enormous budget. Critics declared the end of the brand era, writing the genre itself was dated and brand a product of a demographic now out of touch. Jove Brand had become a parody of himself. In fact, the brand parody movie released the year after was a huge hit, launching its own comedy series. The coffers were bare and the world was against the Calabrias as the three-year countdown to the next release started ticking. No one followed me up the coast, Somewhere in the chain of custody, I had lost my tail. Even the flash drive was headed to a different address than I was. The woman calling herself June Wedding lived a private, migratory life. My destination was a little town out of a fairy tale. Even the trees were on theme, curling and swept. She had a lonely cottage clinging to the edge of a cliff, its stones bound together by ivy. I pulled my car into the garage next to a Tacoma with a half million miles on it, Conscious of my rankness, when summoned by Hollywood royalty, one should not stink up the place. She greeted me with a warm smile and a lingering hug. She might have forgiven me for near death, which made one of us. But it was easier to forgive when you didn't know the whole story. She pulled away and took my cheeks between her palms. Thanks for coming, Ken. A stab of guilt stuck deep. Anything for you, Missy? Fresh clothes were waiting for me when I got out of the shower. Simple, comfortable garments in muted colors that cost more than anything in my closet. The result of ethical sourcing and labor. Does my lawyer know June Wedding's secret identity? She's an old friend, Missy said. She handed me a mug as warm as her smile. Here I was, enjoying a cup of tea with THE Missy Kazale. Four Oscars, five Golden Globes, seven Tony Awards, and who knew how many Emmys. Missy could have an Emmy whenever she wanted one. She was the greatest actress of her generation. Some would argue of any generation, including me. Her credits were a murderer's row of best pictures and modern classics. But they started with near death. That's right. Missy Kazale was my brand beauty. Missy was the only real actor in Near Death, and even she could not elevate it out of schlockdom. But Missy didn't do a brand film for the money or the fame. She did it for love. When Kit Calabria saw Missy on stage, it was love at first sight. They were in Ashland for the Shakespeare Festival. She was playing Miranda, and he was a young man with a vision. The only son of the legendary Big Don Calabria wanted to be a filmmaker. The two were immediately inseparable, Drifting in the shimmering bubble of delicate, perfect love, most of us burst one way or another, usually by being stupid and taking what we had for granted. They would have done anything for each other, which was how Missy ended up starring opposite a talentless schlub in Near Death. One of the many clauses detailed in Bowman Fletcher's Byzantine rights contract was that each film feature a feminine role exemplifying the finest British breeding. I won't beat around the bush. 
Fletcher was all things ending in ist. The Jove brand novels would be incredibly offensive to modern audiences. The non-white and never-British women were chattel, easy to bed and not long for the grave. The masterminds were always white or educated in Europe, with brutish henchmen drawn from a menagerie of offensive stereotypes. When near-death's first lead overdosed in a Ukrainian hotel room, the rest of the cast scattered like high schoolers hearing the sirens at their first kegger. To satisfy the parameters of the contract and thus retain the rights, Kit needed a young, white, passably English actress. Available immediately, in the middle of Hong Kong, who was willing to work for free. Eighteen years later, Missy Cazale still glowed. In photographs, there were other women who blew her out of the water, but on screen, no one compared. She was even better in person. Is it bad? she asked, looking over the cup she had cradled in both hands. The total focus of her attention was electric. It shouldn't be. They won't be able to prove anything because I didn't do it. Missy's laugh sent ripples across the surface of her tea. I know that, Ken. You wouldn't kill anyone. Do you remember when the stunt with Ewan went wrong? I winced like I had bit through a popsicle. How could I forget? You were so mortified. Missy drank while she thought. It was clear you didn't enjoy hurting people, which I found so strange, considering what you brought to the movie. I never knew what to do with praise. When people said good things about me, I wished they would shut up. In the search to change topics, I noticed her watch. Is that mine? From near death? Missy glanced down at it. I'd never seen her sheepish. Kit gave it to me, right before he left to deliver the master print. He promised it was better than a ring. But an hour after his plane took off the battery. Missy couldn't manage the word died. We drank tea while she figured out how to say what she wanted to say. I want to talk about something, but it's going to sound crazy. Sir Colin Prester died in my arms. Lane Lackey was killed by a guy dressed up as a brand villain who got away because I had to fight a group of superheroes. My definition of crazy has evolved lately. Those are fair points, Missy nodded. She stopped to get us refills. Keeping her back to me helped her get it out. Lane Lackey kept trying to meet with me. He even sent a certified letter. Missy nodded at an envelope on the counter. I could feel her watching me read it. Dear Miss Cazale, in the course of my duties as webmaster and content creator of JoveBrandFan.com, the premier Jove Brand fan site, visited by more than 100,000 unique users every day, I have uncovered a scandal guaranteed to rock the foundations of the entertainment industry. As I live under constant threat of security breach, I only feel comfortable discussing my discovery in person. If my theory is correct, your past and future will change forever. Sincerely, Lane Lackey, Esquire. P.S. This concerns your star-crossed love with Kit Calabria. I read the letter twice before giving the envelope a once-over. Lane had sent the letter to Missy's Ashland address, where I had sent the flash drive. As far as bombshells went, this one was underwhelming. I wonder how many drafts he wrote. He did not rival the bard. May they both rest in peace. I drained my teacup. Broth would have really hit the spot, but I wasn't about to put an order in. It would have to be quite the revelation to change your past forever. Relatively, Missy smiled. I didn't get it, but her smile brought mine out. I didn't think anything of it, Missy went on. You know how it is with the letters. 
people proposing or pitching their dream project, or sure they are the secret child you gave away? I can only imagine, and would rather not. Missy sighed. I always wanted to be an actress, but I never wanted to be a star. Looking back, I'm glad I didn't have the talent to get what I wanted. You were fine, Missy said as she took our cups to the sink. No, I wasn't. Missy turned around to make sure I was focused on her. You were hardworking, devoid of ego, and not a creep, which puts you above most of the actors I've worked with. She started digging around in the refrigerator. Self-actualization is not a common quality among the A-list. Remind me to thank the internet. I get daily reminders what my problem is. Missy lined up a selection of fresh produce and chose a knife. When I heard the news about Lane Lackey, I started to wonder if he really had uncovered something about the Calabrias and the Jove Brand movies. My heart spiked. What do you mean? I don't know. Missy started chopping away. I haven't talked to anyone since Kit's funeral, but I'm sure it hasn't been easy for Dina with what happened between them over near death. Missy was brushing too close to my skeletons for comfort. What happened to the rights? They went into a trust controlled by Dina until Dean turns 18, which he does next week. I perked up at the name. Dina named her son Dean? She did, Missy answered. Could Dean sell the film rights? Does the contract allow that? Missy chopped on without raising her head. The only people that know for certain are the ones who have read the contract. Which was a short list. The Calabrias kept the contract on lockdown. Is the franchise in trouble? No, but that hasn't stopped the offers. Missy swept the discarded roughage into her compost bin. Some Russian billionaire tried to partner with Dina on the last film. When she refused, people had accidents, fatal ones. Even Lane Lackey hadn't reported on those rumors. Russian billionaires dealt with the press more definitively than their American counterparts. They also were known for the type of security breaches Lane was paranoid about. I leaned against the cabinets and crossed my arms in an attempt to project confidence. Who's backing the next one? No one. The films are funded 100% by the Calabrias these days. Dina's done an incredible job at the helm. I wish we were still close. She could have taught me a lot when I started producing. I turned it all over in my head while Missy portioned out the salad. Like the criminal justice system, everything I knew about being a detective came from the screen such as stating the obvious. Whatever Lane Lackey was working on, it was worth killing him over. And Sir Colin, Missy added, pushing a chilled bowl toward me. Avocado oil? Yes, please. When Missy lifted it after barely a drizzle, I reached over to push the bottle back down. You might be onto something. Lane Lackey had a flash drive on him. Missy's eyes went wide, the oil bottle forgotten. What was on it? The files were locked, but I saw a list of names. All of them were tied to near death. If I had a spine, this would have been the time to tell her all of it. Instead, I swallowed down the temptation. Missy handed me a lid and we shook our bowls. Where is it? Missy asked. I couldn't think of anyone else the vultures couldn't scavenge, so I mailed it to your Ashland place. It should be there today. I'll get it. Do you know any computer people? No. I crunched into the salad. It had a good balance, and everything was fresh. Boiled eggs would have made it perfect, but 
There weren't any to be found under Missy Kazale's roof. Maybe Mercy does, Missy said. Oh, did you want bread? What's bread? We shared a laugh. It felt good to make her laugh. Despite everything she had accomplished, you'd be hard-pressed to find a candid shot of Missy Kazale giddy. She and Kit were to wed after rapping near death, at the height of the season. But their day never came. We finished eating in silence. I got done way before her. I can't afford Mercy good day. I have money, Missy said, warding me off with her fork before I could reply. I was thinking I should hire a private investigator or someone like that. But... But the studios were slavering over the Jove brand franchise. Sir Colin's last film, Final Bow, topped a billion worldwide, while racking up a real-world body count. Now the bell was tolling again. If someone was willing to kill Sir Colin Prester, no one was safe. There's no one you trust, I said. I just... I had a terrible thought, Missy replied. She turned the water all the way up to rinse out the bowls. It covered up getting herself together. What if the murders go back farther? The actor you replaced, he died in the Ukraine, didn't he? But it wasn't him Missy was thinking about. Missy was thinking that they, whoever they were, might have had something to do with Kit's death. That his plane crash wasn't equipment failure or pilot error. Killing Kit would have killed the franchise if it wasn't for me. But Kit might also still be alive if it wasn't for me, which was a secret I intended to take to my grave. A secret that meant no matter what I did, the scales between Missy and I would never be balanced. Only one way to find out, I said, the same way Elaine Lackey did. Are you sure? Missy asked. When she grabbed the counter, everything from her shoulders down tightened. I could sit around with my fingers crossed in hopes the public investigation cleared me, Spend as much time in public as possible. Hope someone else got their throat crushed, preferably while I was in a different zip code. The dossiers on Lane Lackey's flash drive might as well have been a hit list. If I followed his lead, I was almost certainly putting myself at future crime scenes. And who did I think I was? I wasn't a detective. I didn't even play one on television. But someone was out there hanging corpses on me, and I had to know what Lane Lackey had discovered about near death. My schedule has opened up recently. Whatever is happening, I want it exposed. They need to pay. Missy was a tremor short of desperate, a tremble shy of pleading. Kit was murdered, Ken. Prove it. For me. Five. The last five years, the internet had roasted me on a daily basis for my horrendous portrayal of a spy. Pretending to be a detective wasn't starting off much better. Sitting at Missy's Driftwood Slab table, I listed the names I could remember from the flash drive. I was going to need Missy's help with some of them. Can your people get me a sit-down with Bryce Crisp? I asked. Maybe. I had lunch with him once, with Kit, Missy replied. When? Missy got quiet. When near death was in pre-production. Near death continued to be the common thread. Tell Bryce it's a matter of life and death. Who will you start with? Ray Ford. He's the only one I'm on speaking terms with. Then the Shensei brothers, if Ewan can broker a meet. Missy left the table to fire up the teapot. The Hong Kong producers? 
What reason would you have to meet with them? The Shensei brothers are the closest thing the Calabrias have ever had to a partner. They financed Near Death and distribute Jove brand in China. Missy's back was to me again. I still don't see what they could tell you. I was as keen to get off the subject of the Shensei brothers as Missy appeared to be. Neither do I, but they had a dossier on Lane's flash drive. Those meets should give you time to set up the others. Schedule Dina Calabria last. When I sit down with her, I want to have as complete a picture as possible. Okay. Missy sucked on her lip to keep it from vibrating. Dina needs to know what's going on. She'll thank you, if this turns out to be anything. Missy exhaled from her stomach, the way I taught her. You're right. I took a breath myself before telling Missy the next part. The two people on this list I got close to were murdered. You had a dossier on Lane's flash drive, too. Missy's eyes flickered. You need to get somewhere safe and fast, I said. I don't want to run, Ken. I want to help. There's nothing you can't do from, say, Europe. My Ashland place is secure, Missy countered. I had it tightened after a break-in last year, and I need to get the flash drive anyway. From Missy's posture, I knew to surrender. Okay, but don't let anyone know where you are. I won't. I decided not to mention I also had a dossier on the flash drive. Missy was worried enough as it was. Missy went to the bank, withdrew too much money, and tried to give it all to me. I'd take maybe a quarter of this, I said. You're paying for my lawyer. Detectives incur expenses. What do you charge to train someone per month? I told her. For eight hours of instruction? Closer to twenty, counting drive time. Missy cut a stack of bills from the sheaf. Sign me up for a year, then. Paid in full now. A month, I countered. Six months. Three. Deal, Missy said. If the stack of cash were a script, she passed me the first act. I didn't like taking her money, but also had no idea what this sort of thing would cost. Living on the road added up. Missy's down payment joined my Friday take in my pocket as I headed into town to gear up. I bought a few changes of clothes, keeping it simple, linen pants and plain short-sleeved shirts with no breast pocket. You wouldn't think a breast pocket would get caught on things, but endless hours in the gym taught me otherwise. I fished my Automix boxing shoes out of my gear bag and laced them tight. They looked ridiculous, but they also stayed on from bell to bell. I wandered the aisles of the local stores trying to decide what a detective would need. Going by my film collection, the essentials were a revolver, a pack of cigarettes, and a fifth of rye. I ended up with a pocket notebook, a pack of pens, and a multi-tool. My last stop was a grocery store for a few bags of pecans, beef jerky, and a case of water. Locked and loaded. The drive north was as painless as it got. People who drove for fun, made a hobby of it, mystified me. I resented all the time wasted behind the wheel. The whole point of driving was getting to your destination. My blender and slow cooker were sorely missed. Road food leaned heavily toward carbs. A man could only eat so many omelets. There were a lot of nuts and slabs of jerky in my foreseeable future. I should have bought dental floss. The lanes didn't clog up until I was in the Bay Area, where the roads were permanently jammed. For a center of peace, love, and happiness, the residents sure drove angry. I maintained a bored expression and ignored the honking and screaming, which only got people madder. Ray Ford built his compound cheap back in the 70s when it was still in a bad neighborhood. 
He was looking for plenty of room and neighbors who didn't mind gunfire and explosions. Forty years later, the lot alone could have fetched eight figures easy, but Ray wasn't ever selling. With the cost of moving everything to a different site, he would be lucky to break even. Ray's lot was bordered by a 20-foot-high fence and patrolled by a squadron of drones that somehow avoided collision with each other despite their airspeed. A graveyard of discarded sets haunted by junked vehicles turned the space between the fence and the warehouse into a labyrinth laced with tetanus. The fence was not only topped with, but also woven from, razor wire. Sparks snapped and popped down its length. A sign on the gate read, Trespassers will be disintegrated. There was no buzzer or call box, so I got out of the car and waved toward the warehouse. One of the drones strafed toward me, stopping on a dime a foot short of the wire. A modulated voice sounded from it. Say cheese. I automatically fell into a headshot pose, tilting towards my good side. Auto-tuned Muzak issued from the hovering drone. I took another look around and laughed at what the locals must have thought of this place. Ray Ford's voice, sans modulation, issued from the drone. Ken Allen, is that you? Yep, I said, sketching a salute. Well, get in here, you old so-and-so. The gate dragged open, crackling and squealing, as if Ray couldn't have made it slide as smooth as butter if he wanted. The drone guided me through stripped and repurposed vehicles of every type, including the remains of an Apache helicopter. My old beater blended right in. I parked in a spot by the roll-up doors. Not having any latinum or galactic standard credits, I ignored the parking meter. The exterior door had no handle, but when I was close enough, a plate slid open to reveal a small submarine-style wheel. When I gave it a spin, the door let go with a pressurized hiss. There was no telling how much of this was functional and how much was for show. I stepped into an airlock. The outer door closed behind me, and something that wasn't steam washed over me before the inner door opened. The hallway beyond was reclaimed from a familiar spaceship. A line of green track lights flowed along the base of the wall, guiding my way toward the third door on the left. The door snapped open to disappear into the wall when I was a step away. I was expecting a workshop, but found myself in a comfortable den with wood-paneled walls and a natural stone floor. A roaring fire burned in a hearth big enough to do jumping jacks inside. Two chairs, each with their own side table, sat in front of it. The heads of a dozen fantastical creatures were mounted on the paneling, the fictional weapon that dealt the fatal blow displayed under them. The door slid shut behind me, joining seamlessly into the wall. Though I felt the heat, heard the crackling logs, and smelled the fragrant wood, Ray walked through the blaze without so much as a singe. He looked like the cat who ate the canary. Well, hey there, Ken. Looking good, Ray. I wasn't lying. Since losing the weight, Ray looked like a jockey in a fitted racing suit with reinforced panels on his thighs and forearms. His skin shone like polished walnut. He still kept his head and face closely shaved. These weren't style choices. Loose clothing and static electricity were serious hazards in his line of work. In an act of retributive deterrence, the big studios blacklisted almost everyone who worked on a Jove brand film. Missy Kazale beat the blacklist on pure talent, seasoned perhaps with a small measure of sympathy following Kit's death. Ray beat it because, as one of the best effects guys in the world, he was indispensable. I owe it all to you, Ray said. I still do those workouts you showed me in Hong Kong. I'll send you my new ones. I didn't know what I was doing back then. Bodies still have two arms and legs, last time I checked. You want a coffee? 
I could tell Ray was dying to show off. I would love one. Ray turned back to the hearth and swung one of the stone corners open to reveal a built-in brew station. Cups were shelved in the door. He set one on a pad under a brass nozzle and the java began to flow. Sweeten or lighten her up? Ray asked. No thanks. I blend butter into it these days. Smooths the caffeine out. You don't say. The gears in Ray's head were turning. He handed me my cup and started brewing one of his own while gesturing for me to take a seat. The chair fit like a glove, the coffee was a breath away from scalding, and the faux fire toasty. Now, what brings you here after years of ignoring my Christmas cards? Ray asked. Hey, I kept those. They're probably worth something. Ray puffawed as if he weren't a living legend, the magician of make-believe himself. If he had a tricky stunt, Ray had been the go-to guy to pull it off for 40 years. If you were shooting an effects-driven film and could afford the best, you paid Ray whatever price he demanded. I came about Lane Lackey, I said. Lane Lackey? Ray sat down. I made the mistake of meeting with him last fall. How'd Lane rope you into that? Little Peckerwood had dug up some behind-the-scenes effects footage I didn't want public. His price was an interview. It wasn't much of a shock to learn Lane was willing to resort to blackmail. What did he want to talk about? What didn't he? He questioned me for hours, even tried to stay the night. Would have moved in if I let him. If Lackey was looking for a safe haven, it was hard to beat Ray's compound. Did he ask about any of the Jove brand movies? Ray stirred his coffee with a finger. He tried to play 20 questions with each of them, like he didn't know what I'm about. A magician never reveals his secrets. Damn straight, Ray replied. He stopped to take a drink. Butter, eh? Grass fed. Lane ask any questions not related to special effects? Ray thought about it for a minute. I can go check the recording. You taped Lane's visit? Wanted him to admit he was squeezing me on camera. You think Lane was pulling smoke and mirrors? He wouldn't have been direct. He was onto something big and didn't want anyone knowing. It's what got him killed. Ray set down his cup, his squint intensifying. Lane Lackey is dead? A few days ago, I was there when it happened. Same as Sir Colin. Colin Prester is dead? I looked around the doorless, windowless room, cached in a warehouse, surrounded by an electrified fence patrolled by drones. You don't get out much, do you, Ray? Ray stifled a laugh. All right, point taken. Why don't you catch me up? I started at the beginning. Ray made for a good audience, leaning on the edge of his seat and exclaiming in all the right places. When I was done, he let out a long whistle. Boy, someone is setting you up, but good. My coffee was still piping hot. I hoped whatever Ray did to the mug didn't cause cancer. I'm walking Lane's trail, but I'm also warning everyone on his list. This time, Ray didn't hold back his amusement, adding in a knee slap for good measure. Ain't no one getting in here. Hell, you think I'm in this chair right now? Unable to resist, I reached out and poked a finger into his shoulder. Watch it, I'm ticklish. Let's keep that one between us, I laughed. Now, about Lane Lackey. Yeah, I'll go pull his tapes, Ray said, standing up. I'll come with you. Oh, no, you don't. I like you, Ken, but ain't no one getting a peek backstage. As much as I wanted to see the footage for myself, I let it go. Ray wasn't the sort of person you could argue with. Five seconds after he disappeared through the hearth, I heard his voice. Over here, turn your chair this way. 
The chair didn't swivel before, but it did now. I turned 90 degrees to find Ray's face on a screen integrated into the paneled wall. The right arm on the chair opens up. Find a picture to suit you. The lack of pronouns clued me in. I was watching a recording. There was a built-in remote under the armrest. Every movie Ray had ever worked on was available for perusal. I picked Open Season, Bryce Crisp's debut as Joe Brand. Of the Brand films, I had watched the three transition ones the most, which technically included Near Death. Open Season started with the death of the first Brand, Connor Shaw. A tricky affair. How did you kill off the beloved original and keep the audience from turning on you? Give him a noble, self-sacrificing death. Shaw's brand went out in a hail of arrows, saving the lives of Bryce Crisp and another squire, the treacherous Huntington Smythe, when their training exercise turned deadly. Bryce Crisp and Connor Shaw being friends helped the transition. Shaw was done with the franchise and passed the mantle to Crisp during media promotion. Neither I nor Sir Colin had that advantage. Niles Ensworth wouldn't either. With my luck, they'd end up calling it the Ken Allen Curse. The third act was starting when Ray came back, where Bryce's brand was infiltrating the big game preserve, only to discover the animals were actually animatronic death traps. Still holds up, I said. That's because it wasn't crapped out by a hundred underpaid kids slaving away on computers, Ray replied. I went through my Lane Lackey footage. We talked about the different brand gadgets I mocked up. He didn't ask about the production side of things. Only to do with budget, how I built props, did they really work, the stuff reporters always ask. They didn't track. Lane came here for a reason. Did he ask about near death? Ray went quiet while he recalled. At least I had a movie to pass the time. You know, he did, Ray finally announced. But I didn't have much to tell him. I barely touched your picture. Not enough money or time. Among many other tropes, every brand film had a scene where he met with Vivian Lake, who outfitted him with all the latest gadgets. Her exposition was always heavy with innuendo and double entendre. Vivian circled but never ended up in bed with Brand. Whether they should or should not was hotly debated among the fans. I didn't get my scene with Vivian Lake. In near death, I stared into my video watch intensely, Intense was one of the expressions I thought I had down, but I came off as constipated. As she explained that since this assignment was off the books, they couldn't provide support, only the location of a weapons cache I might find useful. Vivian signed off by promising me a proper fitting should I ever get back to England, so she could find out how I measured up to my predecessors. Ray must have noticed my disappointment. Eager to give me something, he got personal. You know, Kit Calabria and I had it out over that movie. If he had lived, I never would have worked for him again. This was news to me. Why? Ray couldn't believe my question. Why? Because you almost died about ten times during shooting. It was like someone was out to get you. Ray wasn't lying. If you saw a scene in Near Death and wondered how we did it, the answer was we actually did it. Still, the desire to defend Kit was too strong to let it go. We had no budget. Kit was desperate, and I thought I was invincible. We were both young. What you were was naive and eager to please. You ever grow out of that? I developed a sudden interest in my coffee. We had passed the conversational limit I had when it came to talking about myself. Missy still has my video watch. It made it about a day past filming before breaking. 
That's how long it was supposed to last. Ray could get loud when he wanted. For example, when he was feeling attacked. He leaned in and waited for me to fire back. Hey, I wasn't going after you. That it really worked in the first place boggles my mind. Every other production would have pasted on the video screen in post. Ray relaxed into his chair and mumbled out a defense. Mostly, I broke things out of storage and tuned them up. Give me five minutes to replace the battery in that watch and it would work just fine. Missy wouldn't survive it being taken apart. It's the closest thing to a wedding ring she ever got. What can you do? Ray put his hands up. Anyway, props and effects were all Lane wanted to talk about. Maybe he struck out. I didn't agree. If Ray had contributed nothing, why bother giving him a dossier on the flash drive? If Lane learned something beyond near-death's meager effects budget, Ray hadn't taken note. It would have helped to review Ray's tapes myself, but that wasn't going to happen. Well, time to get moving, I said, climbing out of my chair. When Ray shook my hand, I held onto it. Don't let anyone in. I'm serious. People are dying over whatever this is. It was Ray's turn to hold me in place. If that's the case, then let me out, Vitcha. I laughed, expecting Ray to laugh along. But he was dead serious. The magician was offering to open up his wardrobe. It was a step too far. No way. I'm not looking to kill anyone, including myself. Against his better judgment, Ray let me go. If you change your mind, you know where I am. 6. I drove away from Ray's compound until my cell service returned and called the best dim sum place around. My Cantonese was rusty, but it did the job. The woman who answered the phone slammed it on the counter and yelled at someone about how his business wasn't their business. I can have you on the midnight cruise to Jakarta. The combination of Ewan's muted voice and ancient landline made it feel like I was calling a time traveler. I told you to get me in touch with Shensei Studios. I took in the static as Ewan went back to chewing. In all the time we knew each other, we never talked about his connection to the Hong Kong film industry. But no one was cast in near death on accident, including Ewan. Kit didn't know him from Adam. Ewan had clearly gotten a push from someone else. A push that sent him from Hong Kong to California. I know I'm asking a big favor. Ewan finished what he was chewing on. The real favor might be not doing you the favor. That's a good one. What were my lucky numbers? I'll call you back and let you know. If Ewan struck out, I had no backup plan. If Lane was looking into near death's production, Shensei Studios was an essential piece of the puzzle. Kit had struck a deal with Shensei that included equipment, crew, and locations in exchange for distribution of the Jove brand franchise in Asia. Given the desperate situation, Kit had no leverage to negotiate. Shensei Studios got the lion's share of the Asian box office. That distribution deal now made the Shensei brothers half a billion dollars every three years. In return, the new films were guaranteed to be screened, fulfilling the rights contract. American and European distributors could no longer force a default by shelving the release. It gave the Calabrias the upper hand when dividing the take in those markets. I decided to gas up while I waited, but the gauge showed full. Ray was some host. Five minutes later, my phone rang. Go to the Shishi. They will let you in or they won't. Fifty-fifty, huh? Hope I get lucky. Call no man lucky until he is dead. Ewan rasped. 
In the background, the woman who answered the phone was going off on you and about abusing their all-you-can-eat policy. Four thousand years of philosophers and your cookie places ripping off the Greeks. Shameful. The woman who answered the phone yelled something about tying up the line. You might want to be unlucky this time. The phone went dead before I could reply. Fine with me. Ewan had delivered a solid closer. Chinatown wasn't far from Ray's compound, while also being a world away. I parked in the neighboring zip code, took the BART to Union Square, and walked the rest of the way. Being in the tech capital of the world, at least a dozen people took pictures of me. I might as well have flagged my location on social media. I should have asked Ray to whip me up a disguise. I saw Chinatown last. I heard it first, then smelled it, then felt it thrumming through my veins. It would never be a real place to me. I would always view it through the lens of a lanky teen who ran away from home searching for something to search for. An outsider who refused to break, grudgingly passed from one master to the next, graduating, against all odds, to Hong Kong. My time here had been short, but it would stay with me forever. I wove through the narrow alleys without too many bumps. It wasn't long before my entourage formed. Tall, blonde, white guys stood out on the secret streets. None of my escorts bothered to pretend they were doing anything but tailing me. I didn't acknowledge them, but I didn't ignore them either. It was good I didn't need directions because no one would have provided them. Not to where I was going. Shishi Opera House had always been and would always be in Chinatown. There were multiple performances every week, but you couldn't buy a ticket, you had to be gifted one. Sometimes the players performed to a packed house, and other times for a solo audience. Those latter nights were the ones that mattered most. Four pairs of foo lions glared at me as I climbed the carpeted stairs. Ewan could announce my appearance, but he couldn't secure an invitation. The doors would either open, or they wouldn't. I couldn't control that. I could only control myself. They didn't open. I stood at the threshold, displaying no cracks in my veneer. I didn't pace or turn away. The time had come to face the sin of fleeing Hong Kong, my aspirations at the bottom of the ocean with Kit's plane. The sun burned my neck. Sweat rolled down my face and stuck the shirt to my back, but I didn't show any sign of discomfort. I would collapse first. Twenty years ago, I made it three days. Like any aging man, I wondered if what I had gained made up for what I had lost. I wasn't given the opportunity to find out. After two hours, the doors opened, washing me in cool air. The quick response could only mean one thing. The Shensei brothers wanted something from me. What exactly that was would be good to know so that I could deny them it until I got the answers I came for, but nothing came to mind. We hadn't crossed orbits since near-death wrapped. I inclined my head slightly and removed my shoes. A pair of slippers was waiting on the far side of the door. They were my size. I didn't look into the hexagram mirror as I took the right turn into the lobby. I was no expert on Chinese culture. Countless others had forgotten more than I would ever know, but I was aware of my status. I wasn't Chinese, so I would always be an outsider. The credit for my accomplishments went to my instructors. It was like sending a chimp up in a rocket. Sure, the ape had a seat, but it wasn't really steering the thing. The lobby was small. I took the only door that stood open, neither hurrying nor lagging, instead moving with the confidence of purpose. 
It led into the house room. The floor seats were in curved rows facing the stage. The balcony seats were likewise arrayed. The sole box seats, which had their own entrance, sat at a 90-degree angle to the stage so they could watch both the performance and the crowd. My host sat in that place of honor. I chose the seat at the end of the row closest to the box seats facing the stage so my host could observe me without my observing him. I looked to the closed stage curtains in silent stillness. I didn't fidget. It would cause me to lose face, and I had precious little to begin with. As a young man, I had dreamed of being here. Now I dreaded it. The curtain parted. I concealed any hint of surprise. The play was silent and short. A young builder struggled to erect a palace, but ceaseless storms undid his work. Desperate, the builder met with a sage who gifted him a monkey. With a monkey distracting the storms, the builder was able to finish the magnificent palace. But the effort exhausted the builder, who collapsed before the palace's threshold. As the curtain closed, the monkey bore the builder inside the creation that had cost him his life. The silence built, but I said nothing. It wasn't hard, I had plenty to think about. My host finally spoke. I am Shensei Ronshaw. It was a challenge not to react. I had expected an intermediary. Ronshaw Sensei was Chinese film royalty. His father founded one of China's first production studios, committing traditional Chinese opera to film before birthing an entirely new genre, martial arts movies. What was one of the actual Shensei brothers doing in America? My name is Alan Ken, I said, mirroring Ron Shah's family first introduction. My reciprocation was purely for form's sake. Ron Shah knew exactly who I was. Even so, staging a production for my benefit in two hours was impressive. You were in one of my movies in Hong Kong, Ron Shah said. Yes, the one in partnership with Kit Calabria. A partnership which transferred to his sister. Runshaw was letting me know where his bread was buttered. He wasn't about to risk the steady windfall of a Jove brand movie every three years. I could work with that. Not answering a question could be as good as answering it. The killings I stand accused of may relate to that agreement. Lane Lackey was murdered after investigating the production of Near Death. Then you face the same danger. Runshaw looked at the stage. Are you prepared to weather the storm a second time? So this was what they wanted, to test me. Whatever the Shensei brothers had told Lane Lackey contributed to his death. And here I show up, another lamb to the slaughter. Runshaw was looking for a lion. I rose up out of my chair. Only one way to find out. The curtains opened to again reveal the Golden Palace, the backdrop had changed to indicate a passage into fall. Burnished leaves began to drift down from the concealed catwalks above. Unseen drums sounded a slow but building rhythm. The time had come to once again defend the builder's fatal creation. My muscles were stiff, but stopping to prepare would be a loss of face. I jumped onto the stage, ignoring the stairs. All those box jumps were finally paying off. I landed with a stump. The wood reverberated under my feet. Not knowing where the challenge would emerge, I took center stage. A man dressed in a baseball cap and a windbreaker strode from the left wing, his face concealed under an ivory demon mask. Surprise wins fights. 
If you took two fighters of equal skill and size, the victor would be the one who seized the unexpected. The demon closed the distance between us with rhythmic, bounding spins. The final rotation that brought him into range had a kick on the end of it. It arced down over my shoulder line, scything toward the back of my neck. For all it showed, the technique was a fight ender, a one-shot knockout with the potential to put me in the ground. I spun in the opposite direction as the attack descended, dropping my shoulder low. My hair swept the stage as I brought my own kick around. As the demon's foot passed by, my heel connected dead center in the middle of his mask. He went down, his leg coiled under his limp body. Runsha Shensei knew who I had been eighteen years past. Now he wanted to discover who I had become. This was my audition for the part he wanted me to play in the plot that left me framed for two murders. I saluted him, my fist and palm meeting under my bowed head. The next demon came from above, leading with a flying knee that had twenty feet of drop behind it. His skin-tight black bodysuit transformed him into a floating ivory head. I hopped back, fully expecting the fall to finish him, but for a mind-boggling instant the demon's descent halted, and he landed lightly. He took to the air again with a physics-defying triple kick. My hands moved by instinct, but I checked the attacks poorly while stifling a cry of pain. I would be lucky to get out of this without broken fingers. After another featherlight landing, the demon rose into a hover, reversing from a turning kick into a spinning backfist. The surreal change of direction tipped me off. I circled hard as the demon floundered in an attempt to rotate. I grabbed him by the back of his bodysuit, yanked him horizontal, and hammered the heel of my hand into his collarbone. He gave a muffled scream as the bone snapped. His limp body was pulled back into the rafters by the elastic wires that had made his assault possible. I regulated my breathing to conceal any signs of exertion. If this went on for more than ten minutes, I wasn't going to make it. Ten minutes was an eternity in full contact fighting. The falling leaves were cut from crepe paper. Their accumulation made the footing treacherous. I accepted the surrealism of the setting. Everything outside would occur as it occurred. All I could do was address each moment as it came. The third demon strode onto the stage wearing tight shorts without shirt or shoes. He inched forward, his muscles coiled like springs. My other opponents had been traditional performers. The man behind this mask was not interested in putting on a show. He was a fighter. His first attacks were feelers, non-committal jabs designed to test my guard. I saw the kick too late. It landed solid below my ribs, a sweet explosion of pain that brought the world into sharp focus. I did what I could to lessen the impact, going light and letting the force push me away rather than absorbing it. Saving my wind cost me mobility, and the fighter pressed his advantage, launching a tight combination ending with a trip attempt. That's when I knew I was dealing with Sancho, a Chinese hybrid of kickboxing and wrestling. I stepped out of the trip and put two shots into his body, right hook, left hook, he slipped my follow-up to his jaw and went for the stump, while my weight was on my right foot. If the kick connected, I was looking at knee surgery. I slammed my knee into the stage and spun into a sweep. His stomp missed and my sweep hit. It wasn't enough to put him down, but he slipped on a pile of paper leaves. After that, he never recovered. Each of his parries were a breath behind my strikes. He should have submitted, but face did not permit it, so I ended it with a floating punch to his liver. The drums stopped. I stood to show my respects, first to my foe, then to the stage, and finally to my host. 
Runshaw had gotten what he wanted in taking my measure. Who knew if he was pleased or disappointed by the results? Inscrutable might have been an out-of-fashion descriptor, but it fit him to a T. Three foes, three questions, Runshaw said. I gritted my teeth to hide a grimace. A detective who knew what they were doing would have come prepared. I had to wing it. What did Lane Lackey wish to discuss? If we facilitated a transfer of contract for Kit Calabria. Did you? No. I had plenty more to ask, but nothing worth my last question. Like how Lane Lackey had earned his audience with Runshaw Shansei. It would have been nice to know, but it was irrelevant. What mattered was what he'd learned when he'd had a seat at the table. I wish to reserve my final question for a later date. I could tell Shensei didn't like it, but he couldn't refuse. He gave the slightest incline of the head and left without another word. I stifled a yelp of pain as I dropped from the stage. The opera house doors closed behind me before I was down the steps. I did not look back. I was dying of thirst, but didn't stop. Showing weakness was a loss of face, and I was still being watched. I bought a bottle of water, waiting for the train, and drained it in one pull. The impromptu play had been for my benefit. Kit discovering me at the Wushu Championships 18 years ago hadn't been happenstance. Kit needed someone to save the day, and the Shensei brothers had guided him to me. Now they were betting I could pull it off again. They needed the killings to end to save the franchise. It all had to do with the brand film rights. If the Calabrias defaulted, the Shensei brothers would lose a distribution deal worth a billion and a half dollars every decade. It was impossible to explain how much fighting took out of you to someone who had never fought. It was an all-in endeavor. You gave everything, mentally and physically, to stop another person from inflicting permanent damage to your body. Most times that person worked as hard as you, knew as much as you, and was as motivated to escape injury. I was soaked with sweat and couldn't get enough air. If they'd let you ride on top of the train, I would have. I tossed the water bottle on the way to my car, seriously considering a hotel room. I was reaching out for my car door when lightning struck me. All my muscles seized as my joints locked. Everything that could cramp did as my body twisted into a chain of linked knots. The surge lasted somewhere between seven seconds and forever. When it stopped, all I wanted to do was lie there, which was good because it was all I was capable of. Sorry about that, Mr. Allen, but safety first. I had been hit by a lot of things, but this was my first taser. Someone was kind enough to stand over me and block the sun. My eyes wouldn't focus on account of not being able to blink. I tried to reply, but my jaw was locked. I might have nodded. My firm has been employed to relay a message. Please cease and desist your amateur investigation. That, I paused, struggling to sit up, wasn't a bad workout. If you'll indulge me, I'll add my own writer. You're playing fantasy ball in a big league game. That sort of reaching gets people killed. Something tapped me gently on the temple. I smelled the oil, felt the cool machined cylinder. It was shady wherever my ambusher kept his gun. My vision was coming back. I made out two men headed toward a pair of green Range Rovers. Two more men waited on the far side of their hoods. All of them wore the same outfit, 
blue ball caps, gray windbreakers, dockers, and combat boots. The passengers got in before the drivers. I watched them pull away. I wasn't chasing anyone in my condition and didn't want to catch them anyway. I sat in my car for a while enjoying the air conditioning while relearning how to use my arms and legs. Once I was able to work the pedals, I headed back the way I came. Thankfully, I didn't have to get out of the car. The gate opened for me when I pulled up. The drone guide was a lifesaver. In my current condition, I would have gotten lost in my own condo. Ray was waiting for me in the den. Boy, you look like you got ran through a press. I found my voice. Changed my mind. If I'm going to play pretend, I might as well dress up. Holy smokes, it looks like the murders might be part of a greater conspiracy, with Ken cast as the fall guy. It's all about movie rights, but the pickle Ken's in is off-screen. Is he going to be able to fight his way out of this one? Maybe some fancy gadgets will help, as Ken has decided to play the part of Jove Brand for real. The action picks up in our next episode, so stay tuned for Ken's visit to a retired Jove Brand and his clash with the killer. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. <laughs> <laughs>